Market Journal, television for agricultural business decisions, is a presentation of the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Well, thanks so much for joining us here on another episode of Market Journal. I'm Bryce Duskett. We have quickly progressed this year from planting season right into irrigation season. A drive across eastern Nebraska at the midpoint of this past week and most all pivots are already on. We'll see if there's a chance of rain coming up a bit later as Bill Boyer brings us the latest in the weather. We'll also discuss seedling diseases in soybeans and get a behind the scenes look at what, have sub, what some have called the best kept secret at the University of Nebraska Lincoln. That is a look at what we've got coming up on the show. But first, let's head out and into the field for this segment. My colleague Clay Patton from the Rural Radio Network is back again with us this week, back from the winter wheat tour. He joins us now for an update when it comes to the alfalfa crop. Of course, a lot of hay on the ground this past week, Clay, and you've got a report from Southwest Nebraska. Thanks for that, Bryce, and welcome to Wilsonville, Nebraska here in Furnace County down by the Kansas state line. We're talking now with Steve Rice, SR Farms Alfalfa Company and Husker Hay Haulers. And Steve, kind of give us a preview what spring planting season's looking like here and how it's going for you on the hay side. Well, we when we were seeding alfalfa, it was extremely dry um, powder and uh, we got three inches of rain, so they have a chance to have a, a stand. We, we drilled some alfalfa for some neighbors and it's starting to emerge now. So we're, we're getting the new seeding in and getting ready for first cutting. Uh, knocked a couple of fields down, trying to beat the rain that's forecasted for the tail end of this week. But we're just getting started into the season and, and getting, getting a go on it. At least you are getting a chance at some first cutting alfalfa. It looks like the hay demand right there, though, still holding on strong here before we get into the heart of haying season. Yeah, I think most uh, producers are about out of inventory uh, or have been for a while. Uh, so we're going to have a, a short first cutting. We've got frost damage. We've got some drought damage. So there's not going to be an excess of tons on first cutting, but hopefully we'll get a better second and third. For those that are looking for hay, I know you're a member of it, the NAMA or Nebraska Alfalfa Marketing Association. Is that a good way for folks to learn about hay as well, what's for sale or to market their hay? Absolutely. Uh, we've worked with that uh, organization since 97. We put our inventories on there. And uh, if you're looking for, for tons of alfalfa or forage in general, uh, you can look on the Nebraska Alfalfa Marketing Association website and uh, you can list your inventories or if you're buying it, you, you can find the producer that has what you're looking for and call them directly. So it's a great tool for, for uh, alfalfa production and consumption. Again, that is Steve Rice here with SR Farms Alfalfa and Husker Hay Haulers in Wilsonville in Furnace County, Nebraska. All right, thank you very much for that update, Clay, and for some of those additional details. A report from a producer now in southeast Nebraska on the first cutting of alfalfa. That producer reports the dry spring has resulted in about half to two-thirds of the yield of alfalfa as compared to last year. Some areas of the field, even half as compared to the same time last year. Well, the U.S. Department of Agriculture is offering livestock disaster program flexibilities in response to those impacted by drought and then winter storms. USDA's Farm Service Agency announced last week that they are providing additional time to apply for three programs. These deadline extensions are in response to the needs expressed by livestock producers who have experienced significant feed, 
forage, animal and infrastructure losses from pre-existing long-term drought conditions further compounded by unprecedented snowfall and winter storms. These livestock disaster program policy enhancements include an extended June 2nd deadline of this year to submit notices of loss and applications for payment for losses incurred in 2022. The deadline extension and program flexibilities are available to eligible producers nationwide who have incurred losses from a qualifying natural disaster event. The Emergency Assistance for Livestock, Honeybees, and Farm-Raised Fish Program, better known as ELAP, is currently available to eligible producers who have suffered above-normal expenses for hauling feed or water to livestock or hauling livestock to forage and grazing acres due to the impacts of drought. ELAP may also be available to assist producers with the above-normal cost of feed during natural disasters, including extreme winter weather. As for the Livestock Indemnity Program, or LIP, this program reimburses producers for a portion of the value of livestock, poultry, or other animals that died above normal mortality due to qualifying natural disasters. Again, for this program, that 30-day notification requirement has been waived for 2022. FSA is now accepting 2022 Livestock Indemnity Program notices of loss and applications for the payment through June 2nd of this year for all covered livestock that might have been eligible in 2022. Finally, the Livestock Forage Disaster Program, or LFP, will provide benefits for grazing losses due to qualifying drought or wildfire. FSA has recently revised the program to allow additional animals as qualified for the program. This includes livestock that contribute to the commercial viability of an operation and are maintained for the purpose of pleasure, roping, pets, or show. Obviously, lots of information there to digest, but don't worry, we posted a helpful link with all the information. You can find that online at the Market Journal website. Well, last week we brought you some footage from the Flex Row. It's an autonomous machine that research were using to plant a field. The footage was captured at a research facility not far from the capital city, which has a rich history. Rogers Memorial Farm is a no-till farm that grows corn, soybeans, sorghum, and wheat. In this story, we'll look at how that farm is helping to propel agricultural research at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. Just a few miles east of Lincoln, Nebraska, stands a farm with an inconspicuous old white barn on about 320 acres of land with a diverse crop selection. This farm is staffed with only one full-time position. Stuart Hoff serves as the research farm manager here. While this site is a testament to the benefits of no-till farming, Stuart tells us it's evolved a great deal since his initial experience on the property, thanks in part to much of the work of his colleague, Paul Yassa. Uh, originally, I was a student in mid-1980s under Mark Schroeder, the farm manager at that time. Uh, at that time, the farm was mostly a tillage farm. Um, did mostly corn, some corn, uh, soybeans was the majority, and wheat was the majority of the crops at the farm at that time. Then in the 1990s, early 1990s, I became full-time for the department at that time, and uh, Mark Schroeder uh, moved the farm into a no, full no-till after seeing what was done with uh, plots that uh, uh, Albert Dickey and Paul Yasa were doing and he also incorporated that into the other ground that the department had at the ENARC facility up at Mead. Paul Yasa, who was recently recognized for his contributions to no-till farming, has spent several years at Rogers Memorial Farm. 
He tells us, while his work here has enhanced his extension education programs for farmers around the state, the farm has also been utilized by groups such as NRCS and the Ag Research Service. Well, at the Rogers Memorial Farm, I've been working there for a large number of years, and it's a, sort of a trial proving ground for me, and it actually adds a lot to my extension programs, because when I go out and talk to producers, then I've actually been doing it in the field myself, and that's one of the beauties of the farm. It's allowed me to try a lot of things to take out to producers. Well, when it comes to Rogers Memorial Farm being a host to other groups coming out, ARS, uh, the Ag Research Service, had a set of plots out there that uh, they ran for 40 years comparing uh, different tillage systems for corn and soybean production. And uh, it's the kind of thing where they were taking some in-depth measurements in the field, uh, in the soil itself, the kind of thing that an extension engineer doesn't do. And so again, it added a lot to the database on tillage systems. Now, NRCS, uh, we're twofold there. One is they've used us as a training site. We've conducted the national training for uh, all the NRCS new employees 2016 until COVID shut us down in 2020. But uh, every new employee came in for a three-week class in Lincoln and spent about five days or parts of five days out at the farm where they could actually see the practices we are using to see, actually see how soils improve. Since its inception, Rogers Memorial Farm has evolved into a self-sustaining triumph of no-till farming practices. Planting and harvesting on the property are generally overseen by Stuart and Paul, the profits from commodity sales generated by the crops raised by Paul and Stewart are the main source of revenue that keep this operation running. Uh, we raise soybeans, corn, sorghum, and uh, wheat, winter wheat on the farm. We don't have a lot of storage. We can store about 12,000 bushels on the farm. So I'm contracting some soybeans off the farm before we harvest, and so I got room to put the, all the remaining soybeans in the bin for later sales. Um, I maneuver things around, so corn goes in another bin. Uh, for year, last 10 years, up until last year, I was raising white corn, because it was a, had a market premium over yellow, then the markets flipped. And so I moved over and produced less corn, mostly for plot areas, and put in more sorghum, because I kind of seen the drought coming. So I thought this would be a good opportunity push uh, push more of that on the farm again so this forward-thinking operation truly is a realistic setting for the future of agriculture which is trending towards smaller operations globally as the rogers memorial farm operation looks to future partnerships and more robotic innovations hitting their fields paul and stewart are certain that this research facility will continue to lead local and national farming practices well into the future reporting for market journal i'm bill dodd Alrighty, thanks for that story, Bill. Paul went on to tell us that the rows of no-till plots at the Rogers Memorial Farm are a lasting testament to the practicality of no-till farming for more than 43 years. Well, let's turn our attention now over to the markets, in particular the cattle markets. This week we had a chance to head out and visit our friend Mike Briggs from Briggs Feed Yard, located near Seward, Nebraska. Well, it's a beautiful morning out here at Briggs Feed Yard as we catch up with Mike Briggs. 
Mike, uh, good to see you again, as always. Nice to see you. People like having you on Market Journal, myself included in this, because you're a cattle feeder yourself and you tell it like it is. So let's have you do so as we begin. My wife would say that means I don't have a filter, <laughs> but okay. One of the two. Get your thoughts uh, on cattle prices today, live and feeder prices. What do you think of, of this market? Today you picked a great day because it looks like we're going to get three to five higher in live cattle. We traded 280, 282 last week. You can already get 285 today. I'm holding for 287. We'll see if I weaken or they do. But um, things are really good in the, in, the, in the beef market right now. We're coming to that time of year. It's Memorial Day. It's our biggest beef holiday of the year. Demand's going good. The weather's gotten better. People have taken their grills out. So things are doing good. All right, I'll ask you about uh, in-depth of a lot of those topics, but first, how sustainable are the prices we're seeing right now? Kind of a sideways trend for maybe perhaps the past month. How long do you anticipate this? That's a great question, and everybody's got an opinion about it. Fundamentalists are really bullish because the fundamentals are really solid. We don't have a lot of fat cattle around, not a lot of cattle coming after these cattle. Technicians, they look at the charts and say, oh, this thing's going to cave, this thing's going to cave. Well, those guys have been wrong all spring. Eventually, they're going to be right. Um, I think we're good. You know, typically, you're pretty good into about the middle of June, maybe the third week of June. Then it starts to weaken a little bit. You still got, after Memorial Day, you have Father's Day. Then you're going to roll into the 4th of July, and after the 4th of July, it always caves. And I think it's going to cave this year. Now, you're not, I don't think you're going to get your 10 to $15 break like you typically do, but you're going to get a break because you're going to get in the dog days of summer and beef demand goes down. Mm -hmm. Obviously, one of the major stories you and I continue to talk about uh, when we discuss the cattle markets is the herd size. Cattle on feed report continues to show the herd's just not there the way it used to be, and it takes a while to, to rebuild it. I think one of the concerns you've brought up, though, is people who were raising cattle before might not be doing so anymore, and those cattle might be gone uh, you know, from the supply for indefinite amount of time. That's a big, big concern of mine. You've had e either people go broke, ground go out of agricultural use into something else, and just people not gonna do it anymore. Ranching's a hard life, and very few people get wealthy doing it. People on TV do, that's about it. Um, I think that is my biggest concern going forward. Will we ever get the cattle supply back to where we had it after the last drought in 2012, where we got our supplies up pretty good in 17 and 18 before we started to go back the other way? I don't know if we can. I hope we do, because if we don't, those of us in the feed yard industry are gonna have a problem of overcapacity, and those people that like to eat beef are gonna have to pay more because there's not gonna be as much of it around, and that I don't like either one of those scenarios. Consumers right now seem to be willing to pay that higher price. I told you it seems like a lot of analysts are on the edge of their seat asking the question, when, when are they gonna stop? When are they gonna switch to another protein? Your thoughts on that? You know, that's been a wonderful thing. Two years ago, everybody thought people were gonna go to fake meat. They don't, cause it's awful. If you look at pork right now, that stuff is practically free and they are not pulling demand away from beef. People like beef. We are, we are making a much better product than we were 15 or 20 years ago. It's a higher grade, it's a high, it, the genetics have gotten better. Everything about our product has gotten better and people like it. So it's gonna give us some staying power. How much? I'm not sure, because we've got some pretty lofty prices on our middle beans. So you want the herd to be rebuilt. I get that, better for feedlots and better for consumers, but where's the middle ground between, you know, good prices for, for the cattle guys, so they're happy receiving that, and consumers being happy with the price as well? That's a great question. See, you've got that, you've always had that struggle. You've got that three-segment market, ranchers, feedlots, 
processors, well, and then fourth would be retail, and it never seems to equalize. You know, the in 2012, Packer started shuttering capacity. Well, then that means we, we had way too much capacity of cattle, and they just beat the dog out of us. Well, now it's getting to where it's more our turn with the, with the, with the hammer. But I don't know if that's ever going to change. I, it, it's, that's just capitalism. It goes up and down, and I just think supply-demand, it's never going to change totally. I know the Packer would like it to change so that they have control of it at all the, all times, but that's that's just I guess that's just life. I guess I, I don't have a good answer for you. What kind of cycle does the cattle market usually? Is it a ten-year cycle, five-year? Cattle is a ten-year okay. cycle, and and it's almost like clockwork. Now it gets varied depending upon what Mother Nature does. We should be rebuilding the herd now, but we're not because it won't rain. The economics say keep your heifers get more cows, have more calves, but they can't because it won't rain. Now, I think we're gonna have a change here. If, depending on your weather person you listen to, my weather person, we're gonna have a change here about the middle of June. It's gonna get be really dry these first couple weeks of June. It's gonna make people really nervous. Then it's gonna start raining. That's a little late for some of the grass. So that's, they're not gonna be, now maybe they can keep back calves this fall. I don't know, but this, shortness this short part of cattle supply cycle it's going to last a little longer just because mother nature won't let it build all right well let's get your final take this week what do you want to leave us with enjoy it while you can because i don't know how long it's going to last <laughs> i think it's going to i think we're going to have our typical break into the summer but i think we're pretty good here for a couple three weeks always good to visit with mike as a reminder we post all of our market segments as a standalone video on the market journal youtube page be sure you've subscribed to market journal over on youtube if you have not done so already well it's been a spring of haves and have nots when it comes to moisture drought is still persistent across much of nebraska and because of that some producers are looking for forages for cattle there are several opportunities for planting fill-in forages like warm season annual grasses planted in late spring or early summer you can learn more about fill-in forage options in the may issue of the nebraska farmer Speaking of drought, let's get an update now on weather with Market Journal weather analyst Bill Boyer. Bill, some folks are benefiting from timely rain, but there are lots of pockets still in need. Any relief on that front coming up in the next week or so? Well, yes, I think we have some good news for almost everybody. Not every day, but we're going to see daily chances of showers and storms really for most of the week. That's good news uh, for most of us. Again, not much change in the drought monitor this week. Still have some severe drought conditions in a large portion of the region of uh, the state. You'll notice, though, the uh, extreme drought conditions continue to shrink. We did have an expansion of the exceptional drought conditions down into uh, more of the east central Nebraska here. Those areas have actually expanded. Why? Well, those areas are short on moisture this year, too. We've got four inches below normal of precip Hastings, Grand Island over five inches below normal in Lincoln and about three and a half plus in Norfolk. So this area right in here of the state has been struggling. Uh, notice the western half and central parts of the state better than normal, over an inch above normal, three inches plus in Imperial, still two inches above normal out in Scotts Bluff. So there has been some relief and I think again, we're gonna see daily shower and thunderstorm chances afternoon and evening hours especially the western two-thirds of the state. 
every single day this week, but you'll notice these continue uh, to make their way across the state. If we go Monday, now we look at Tuesday, kind of a rinse and repeat sort of cycle. These are going to be showers and thunderstorms, though, so not everyone's going to be treated equally. Uh, but as we go through every single day this week, it looks like we're going to be dealing with another round, round after round after round of scattered thunderstorms. Again, some could be strong. We don't see any huge widespread severe weather outbreaks, so that's certainly good news. Temperatures are going to be warm out there as we're going to be in the 70s and 80s. We may see some heat build in towards the end of the week, uh, just to the south and east of us and flirting with the eastern portions of Nebraska, but generally going to be uh, near to a slightly above normal with temperatures through the week with precip chances pretty decent out there. And in fact, when we total everything up, we're looking at some areas uh, of a couple of inches of rain, maybe lesser amounts in the far eastern portions of the state, kind of where those drought conditions persist. Hopefully we're able to get some moisture in those areas. It looks like we've got some decent shots of that. Uh, and it seems like as we look at our eight to 14 day outlook, we're going to be above normal temperatures for the most part with mostly above normal precip opportunities for at least the western two-thirds of Nebraska. And as we look at the new 30-day outlooks just put out, above normal temperatures in the east and above normal precip in the west. So uh, some areas of the state may do better than others, uh, but it looks like everybody throughout this week should get some moisture, and hopefully it's enough in your area that it comes without hail or the other things that we get uh, these times of year, Bryce. So all in all, pretty decent news. Alrighty, thank you for that update, Bill. We do appreciate it. Finally today, last week, we had Kyle Broderick from the Plant and Pest Diagnostic Clinic on the show to talk about how to send seedling disease samples in for testing. The week before that, we discussed corn seedling diseases and soybeans are now emerging from the ground. So this week, we wanted to take a, a look at some of the potential soybean seedling diseases. Earlier this week, we visited with extension plant pathologist Dylan Manjol. Well, let's talk about some of the things that might be popping up. Of course, for most of our viewers at this point, soybeans are in the yeah. ground. Some have emerged, others are waiting for it. What comes next when it comes to things we should be looking for? Yeah, so soybeans are emerging and that's good sign when you've got those coming up. But unfortunately, sometimes seedling disease occurs uh, as these soybeans emerge. So um, one of the first things you can look for with these is just gaps in the row. If you've got a plant stand in there and you're trying to evaluate your stand and you see missing missing plants in those rows, you might start to question why, and oftentimes the case is seedling disease. What are some of the seedling diseases most common for where we're at here in Nebraska? So there's several seedling diseases, and many of these are shared with corn. There's Pythium, Phytophthora, Fusarium, and Rhizoctonia. Um, those are kind of all going to show up in different soil types throughout the state, um, but you could really have all of them anywhere at this point. Have they been different in terms of pressure that they've been applying for producers over the years? What are, mm -hmm. what are some of the trends you're seeing in diseases? So really it comes down to what your field history is. A lot of times you'll get an area in a field where you've got a, a consistent problem. Uh, but, but across the whole state, one of the ones we've been seeing most is Phytophthora. So we'll get plants, plants into the plant and pest diagnostic clinic here at UNL. And Phytophthora is just what we've seen come in the most. Phytophthora is also the most persistent one. So those other three pathogens you'll see early on, but as the season develops, Phytophthora will continue to infect and can even infect as, as late as applying some of that first irrigation water into the season. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the water side of this. It seems like the more water we get, the more challenges that sometimes arise for 
seedling disease. Is that an accurate representation of how things go or, or what I guess usually spurs on some of the most yeah. common diseases? Yeah, so oftentimes these, these pathogens are there in the ground and it's just depending on, dependent on getting those soil conditions just right uh, to put that seed in a susceptible place. And um, it oftentimes comes with water, cool temperatures and moisture are what'll do that. But uh, you can get them in dry temperatures or in drier uh, soils as well. So it just depends on the soil type and often sandy soils we'll see some of these do even better without the water. So Wet or dry, doesn't sound like they discriminate uh, on no. that front. Okay, so you're out uh, looking at some of your soybean fields as they're emerging, you, you notice a bit of a problem. Is it something you can look at and identify yourself or does it have to be a sample sent in? It's really tough to identify these. So one of the things, you know, if I see them out in the field, I always take them back to the lab and you gotta look at them up close to really see what you're dealing with and to verify it. And it's extremely important to actually verify exactly what you're dealing with because the management responses are gonna be specific to individual pathogens. Uh, so you wanna make sure you know what that is so you can make those selections for your, your inputs next year. How quickly, if you notice something's happening in the field, should you wait a week and see if it might come out of it or is that the yeah. time where you need to send something in right away? Well, it's worth figuring out just so you know what it is in the future. Um, but oftentimes with, with beans, specifically, it might grow out of that. So uh, one of the only things you can do in season to deal with seedling disease is, is a replant. So you might decide and you're gonna have to put some effort into, into making that decision if it's worth replanting or not, especially with beans that might be able to compensate through it. So a lot of that's gonna come down to taking your stand counts and deciding where's your, where's your line that you'd wanna replant. Yeah. So that's about the only thing management-wise you can do is replant, it sounds like. In the season, out of the season though, you know, if you're thinking about next year, you wanna know what's happening this year so you can select uh, a variety that's gonna do well under those conditions next year. So there's, there's several resistance genes out there that you'll find in seed catalogs that are listed specifically for seedling diseases. So uh, the important thing is you have to know what seedling disease you have though in that field so you can pair it with that variety. And then you can also pair that variety with an effective seed treatment. And seed treatments are also pathogen specific. So knowing what you have is important for that selection as well. All right, what else do you wanna make sure we're aware of right now when it comes to seedling diseases, Dylan? Take the time and make the investment in scouting those and seeing if you've got them. It could save you, you know, it might not be worth replanting this year, but it could save you next year if you can get a, a variety that's gonna be resistant to that in there. Um, Think about seed treatments, and if you're going to use one, pair it with a resistant variety to get that strongest effect. So that's seedling diseases. What's next for us? What should we be watching out for when it comes to our soybean crop? There's lots of things. You and I talked yeah. about it this winter of things that happen with soybeans in this region, but I guess what's, what's the next thing you're going to be keeping an eye out for? Well, it really depends how much moisture we get and what kind of weather events we get. If we get high winds and, and damaged plants, we'd expect more bacterial pathogens show up. Uh, if, if we've got a little while until we get more moisture, uh, we can see foliar pathogens, pathogens really show up as the humidity increases. Thanks again to Dylan for joining us on this week's show. If you're looking to get updated information when it comes to this growing season, you can find a lot of information over on the website cropwatch.unl.edu. Well, that is all the time we have for this week's show. Do remember, if you missed a story, be sure to follow Market Journal on our YouTube and social media pages to join in on the conversation. We do hope to see you back here next time. Until then, I'm Bryce Duskett, wishing you a safe and productive week. Join Market Journal online at marketjournal.unl.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter 
Instagram, and Facebook. Promotional support is provided by the Nebraska Farmer Magazine. Partial funding is provided by the Nebraska Soybean Board and the Nebraska Corn Board. Market Journal is produced by the University of Nebraska-Lincoln's Institute of Agriculture and Natural Resources.